Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 657 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 20th of November 2022 as I record this. So in today's show I'm talking to Dory Clark about the long game, how to have a creative career for the long term, how to think about what you really want and head in that direction even if you don't know how to get there what disruptions might be coming our way, and a challenging opinion on the diminishing returns of writing more books, and why Dory is going to spend the next five years promoting the long game. And uh, it's a really fun discussion. I love Dory's work, so I know you'll enjoy the interview today. So in publishing and book marketing news, well, very interesting. I mean, I have said that TikTok seems to be on steroids, as in it's moving so fast through what some companies have taken many years to achieve. And from being an initially just, a, I guess, a social video platform, they have now decided to sell books directly. So they're moving into e-commerce uh, through TikTok Shop. Now, they have announced partnerships with HarperCollins, WH Smith, Blue Bloomsbury and bookshop.org, all of which will sell books via TikTok's online marketplace. Now, this is really interesting. If you sell print wide through IngramSpark or BookVault, your books will be distributed to bookshop.org. So, well, you can check. I mean, they don't take all of them, but they take most of them in the catalogue. So this benefits authors selling direct as well as traditionally published authors with those publishing houses. This is not a partnership with Amazon. So if your print books are only on Amazon, you will not be able to be part of this. Uh, although I believe you can go direct to TikTok shop. And I actually heard TikTok speak at the Wired conference a few well, a month ago. <laughs> Time flies. Uh, a month ago now. And they, it was all about TikTok shop and how they're basically going to become this e-commerce platform. Uh, so this is really interesting. This was reported in, in The Guardian. So it says any merchant signed up to TikTok shop can advertise and sell products to users within the app. The marketplace has been gradually expanding to include fashion, consumer electronics, beauty, fresh and frozen goods, and now books. We're delighted to make it even easier for book lovers to buy the latest BookTok recommendations without ever leaving the platform, while also providing new avenues for publishers, both large and small, to reach their audiences. It does note, though, the increased commercialization of BookTok hasn't always been received positively. Uh, one user said, while I enjoy content created by businesses, the best part about TikTok is the authentic and unpolished aspect of it. And I would hate to see it becoming overly commercialised, especially with the lack of diversity in publishing. So this is interesting in many ways. One is this uh, direct sales approach, which makes a lot of sense because TikTok is driving so much, so many sales. But what I guess they've decided is they don't want it driving sales on other platforms. So if you are someone who 
enjoys TikTok, as I have said many times, that is not me. <laughs> I, w- I won't be joining TikTok for this reason. But if you are using it, then maybe start thinking about how you could have your books on bookshop.org and sell direct there. Or of course, you can always have a call to action with your Shopify store. But I think TikTok shop is going to, I mean, who knows where it's going to go, but they're clearly going up against even Amazon by offering from fresh and frozen goods to books and fashion and all of that kind of thing. So very interesting indeed, although of course there are still sort of moves in the US and other places to ban TikTok entirely because it's owned um, by Chinese companies. So, <laughs> And of course the data there is probably the most important thing. But very, very interesting times with e-commerce, direct sales, more and more possibilities to sell books outside of the ecosystem that most authors and publishers have been focusing on for, yeah, a while. (laughs) So yeah, there we go. If you are using TikTok shop as a e-commerce platform, I'd love to hear from you what, what happens there. If you've got a success story, that's the side of TikTok I'm interested in. Not again, not for me, but for selling direct. So in useful stuff, just to mention my webinar with Alex Newton from Klytics, we're talking about trends for 2023. We haven't done a live webinar together for a few years now, and his research into categories, keywords and genres is really interesting, given what Rachel McLean talked about last week in terms of researching the intersection between what sells and what you love. You can join us for that webinar on Thursday, the 1st of December, 8pm UK time, 3pm US Eastern. Alex will go through genre trends, how to spot them, the impact of Amazon's recent category display changes, fundamentals and pitfalls of sales rank, categories and writing to market, and how the right data can save you time, money and creative energy. So, and help you sell more books in 2023. You can register for your free place at thecreativepen.com forward slash trends 23. Links in the show notes. So in my personal update, I have the printed draft of Pilgrimage here on my desk. And this week, as this fact, as this goes out, I will be hand editing it. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be hand editing it and getting it to my editor on the 1st of December. It's so funny because it had ballooned to, it was probably 150,000 words at one point. And then in, you know, I use Scrivener and and I I wrangle chaos. (laughs) It's my writing process. And it's really now, it's, it's, gone down to sort of 40,000 words because so much of it was repetition and repetition is just not necessary in this context. So it is now, yeah, it's pretty pretty tight, I think. So I'm, I'm happy with it. I'm going to edit it. And it's funny, I know I said I didn't want to do a Kickstarter earlier this year. And I didn't because let's face it, I was trying to launch how to write a novel. And I was also trying to build my Shopify store. And that was really important. It was too much to try and do a Kickstarter as well. Um, but I think I will do one for for pilgrimage because I also want to do one for the shadow book next year. So um, but I'm not going to try and do anything massive I'm just gonna do a basic kickstarter to try my hand at it I I feel like it is missing in my process but I'm also only going to do it once the book is finished and once I know uh, the weight of the final book so I know the shipping costs and all of that kind of thing so yeah I want to do a special print run for the launch but in order to do that I need to know how many people want to buy the book and Kickstarter definitely does seem a good way to do that so that's going to be my plan I'll talk more about that 
once I've really written it all down. But it will probably be, um, I'll probably be doing that in February. And uh, once I've done all the print design and everything, I want to make this a special book because this has been the last sort of two years of my life. It <laughs> there's, there's a lot about the midlife journey, uh, pilgrimage as a journey and all kinds of that. So it's, it's a special book for me. So yeah, um, my plan will be to, once it goes to the editor, I'll start really planning that Kickstarter and the launch process. So it will go Kickstarter for the special editions and also the ebook and audiobook and all of that. And then it will go onto my Shopify store and then it will go onto all the other platforms. So it will, it will be a sort of first bite of the cherry direct, second bite of the cherry direct, third bite of the cherry, everyone else. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm really definitely focusing 2023 is direct first all the way. So I'm also doing an online course with LSE, which is a university here in the in, in London, uh, the London School of Economics, and it, it's actually on AI ethics. So I'm such a techno optimist and I want to write another AI book next year as well, although I also want to do the shadow book. I also got some fiction. You know, every year it always, always seems like there's more books to write and yet never enough time. I know you know how that feels. But um, this AI ethics course fits into the 20% time that Dory talks about, which is we need to allow time for speculative things that we may or may not know where they lead. I want to challenge my techno-optimist perception and make sure I have a more balanced view. Um, but as ever, ethics is all about trade-offs. And so it's a really interesting course, but um, I'm doing that at the same time. In terms of income things, I finally set up my PDF workbooks. So I've been, I've got, I've got four or five workbooks on how to write a novel, um, the business plan, business plan workbook, uh, some other ones, productivity, that kind of thing. They are now available to buy in PDF workbook editions, so you can download them and print them yourself instead of only print copies. So I, I hadn't been selling ebook workbooks, and now I am selling them. So they're on creativepenbooks.com uh, in the PDF workbook section, and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. And then you can either print them off to fill in, or you can fill them in on your tablet or your Kindle Scribe or your Remarkable or whatever you use. So yes, that is on um, creativepenbooks.com. Right. Thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments. Thanks to Sarah, who sent a lovely smiling picture. Uh, she said, thank you for interesting, copious content. Been listening on dog walks for three months. And she is a farmer's wife in sunny Cheshire. It has been sunny here in the UK recently. <laughs> it's very unseasonable uh, weather right now. Uh, Matty Dowrymple said, brilliant conversation with Rachel McLean. Thank you. And of course, Matty has lots of conversations and tips over at the Indie Author Podcast and Indie spelled I-N-D-Y. Um, Matty has lots of great stuff over there. And on Twitter, <laughs> DJ Mustard Seed says, quoting Becca Syme, who I quoted last week, said, building structures around books that don't sell is not sustainable. That's harsh, but true. Hope my books sell. <laughs> Now, we all hope our books might sell, DJ, but uh, we need to do more than hope. Obviously, we need to put our plans in process. Uh, but also just on Twitter. <laughs> yes, I'm still on Twitter. Yes, I'm planning on staying there. I uh, I know. <laughs> Talk about wrangling chaos. It definitely is that right now. But um, Twitter has been my primary social media platform for uh, since 2009. So what's that? 13 years. I love the platform. I still love the platform. I think it 
if they figure all their stuff out, it's going to be better than ever. I also, for my AI side, for my um, metaverse side, for crypto Twitter, for all of that, I get most of my um, stuff from Twitter. I get a lot of uh, information and things that I bring to you in the futurist segments. A lot of that I find on Twitter and I have my curated lists and all of that. So yeah, I'm still there, planning on staying there. We'll go down with the ship if it crashes and burns. <laughs> uh, and also, it's funny because I've seen other people say, oh, no, no, you should just move on to Mastodon or whatever. And I'm like, do you know what? If Twitter ends for me and ends for all of us, then I will, will not join another platform. As in, I will try and do without it. Uh, I've always said that if I had to run my business, you know, I could run my business with this podcast and with an email list, basically. I don't really need any more than that. So essentially, remember this, if you decide to end your relationship with a platform, whatever that is, you don't have to go and join another one. Like you can opt to just opt out. And I feel like that's what I will do. I will, if Twitter ends, I will not go somewhere else. So interesting to consider that. But yeah, it almost frees up something. Uh, time, perhaps. <laughs> okay, so today's show. Oh, yes, sorry. Remember, you can tweet me if you're still on Twitter at The Creative Pen. Send me pictures of where you're listening or you can email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. You can leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. But you can't TikTok me. You can't uh, DM me on Instagram. You can't DM me on Facebook. You cannot, <laughs> you cannot master on me, whatever you do on that platform. So, yes... <laughs> Uh, you, you can't even message me yet. Yeah, literally, I only check things like email and Twitter. That's it. And the comments. So there you go. We have to make decisions around what to not do, don't we? So this episode is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. One way to reach a new audience on Kobo is through their subscription reading service, Kobo Plus. This programme has been a great success and is now available to readers in Canada, Belgium, the Netherlands, Portugal, France, Italy, Australia and New Zealand. The great thing about Kobo Plus for authors is that it reaches an entirely new audience who may be trying digital reading for the first time. And uh, Kobo Writing Life team know how important it is that authors retain control of their books. And this is the important thing, everyone. Exclusivity is not required for Kobo's subscription program. You can also choose the areas. Do you want to try out a book in Kobo Plus Canada, but not in the Netherlands? Simply select the areas you want to be included in the rights and distribution section of your book. And just to add to this, there was a press release in the last week. Kobo's all-you-can-read subscription, Kobo Plus, has expanded to audiobooks in Canada. And I went into my audiobooks that are direct on Kobo and selected that they should be opted into Kobo Plus because I absolutely do believe in subscription programs. I just really want them to be non-exclusive, which is what Kobo Plus is. If you're choosing to publish widely as an author, Kobo encourages you to make your books available to as many readers as possible. And with Kobo Plus, it's a great way to gain and build an audience. If you have lots of books and you don't want to opt them in one by one, the KWL team can help you and bulk opt in. Email them writinglife at kobo.com. And if you have any uh, questions about KWL, the team are very helpful. 
That's writinglife at Kobo.com. You can also check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast available on the app you're listening to right now and find them on social media. Create your free account today at Kobo.com forward slash writing life. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. And I have this week sent out, or last week as this goes out, sent out the Q&A show for patrons, which is a sort of 45 minutes of answering questions on everything to do with writing craft and self-publishing and book marketing and the futurist stuff and mindset and personal questions. So you can get all the backlist if you subscribe. Um, thanks to new patrons this week, Bianca Wardle, Ella Beaufort, Christy Cowie, A.D. Wilk, Hope Terrell, Juliet Freymouth and Lee Hughes. And you can support the show for just a few dollars or a few more than a few dollars if you're feeling generous with, uh, and of course, dollars, euros, pounds, whatever. Just go to patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Jory Clark is a best-selling author, keynote speaker, executive educator, film director, and producer for a multiple Grammy-winning jazz album. Her books include Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, which we're talking about today. So welcome, Dory. Joanna, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Oh, no, I'm excited to talk about this. But I, I want to ask you first, because as I was looking at your bio, I'm like, oh, my goodness, you are such a multi-passionate creator. And a lot of people listening are as well. And you've got this visual art thing, the music thing, writing, teaching, speaking. So how do you balance your time between everything you do and prioritize? Well, one of the concepts that I actually talk about in my latest book, The Long Game, is 20% time, which was popularized. It was actually originally created by the company 3M that's famous for its sticky notes. They had something called 15% time. And then Google popularized a related concept of 20% time. And the the idea was that they would encourage their employees to spend up to 20% of their time on basically more speculative projects, things that were outside the scope of their official responsibilities. Now, the caveat, of course, is that a lot of Google employees, even though theoretically they're encouraged, don't actually do it because they are too busy, you know, like all of us. But in theory, this is something that is part of the, co- the company DNA. And that's how Google News was created. That's how Gmail was created, is people just exploring things and trying new stuff that seems interesting. And so in the long game, I really beat the drum that I think it's important for all of us to proactively choose to do this, whether we work for ourselves, whether we work at a more traditional job, finding pockets of time, you know, maybe it's 20%, maybe it's 5%, who knows, but to invest in something that is outside the norm of what we are quote unquote supposed to be doing, I think is really valuable, both for keeping us engaged and creative and also pushing the envelope on something that might be the next big thing. So I really actively try to invest my 20% time in things like directing a film or writing musicals or things like that. But even just with what you're doing, I mean, obviously, a lot of people listening have a a day job as whatever they do as a day job and writing is their 20% time. <laughs> so it's like it's normally the thing people do as se- a separate, whereas you and I, it's part of our professional career. But you have a teaching job, I think, and you're a speaker and all these other things. So it's almost like, yeah, there's that 
extra bit, but even within what we have to do as part of our normal job, how do you balance your time? Because a lot of people worry about how do they create from scratch time and then how do you get the business stuff done, basically? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's always the balance, right? Between the the long-term vision of where we want to go and the short term of just feeling feeling the press of the things that are on us, whether it's all the messages in our inbox or all the meetings or things we have to get through. And I empathize in a big way. Uh, I had nine meetings yesterday. That is extremely suboptimal. That is not how I want my days to be, but occasionally a day ends up being that way. But I, I know that for me personally, I try to put safeguards around it. And and I think that in a lot of ways, a problem that many of us fall into, especially if you're a person who is competent, you know, who can get a lot of things done, you tend to want to get a lot of things done. And if there's a request, you want to say yes and do it. And so I actually have been really pretty vigilant in recent years about trying to put up guardrails. Occasionally, you might proactively decide, all right, I'm going to overrule it in this particular instance. But for instance, it might be things, you know, and I've had variations in uh, in the past, depending on what my particular goal is, but it might be that I will not work past 7 p.m., let's say. I'm ceasing all activity <laughs> just mm. as, a, as a forcing function. And the the interesting thing is that much like writing a sonnet uh, causes you to be more creative because you want to say a certain thing and you're like, well, damn, how do I say that in iambic pentameter? If you actually have a rule for yourself, whether it's I'm not taking meetings on Friday or I'm only going to work until 7 p.m. and not a drop later, whatever it is, it it often forces you to to triage in a way that can actually be helpful, I think. No, I like that. And you mentioned safeguards there and guardrails. I, I like that. But then uh, another thing, I mean, you're obviously incredibly competent at everything you do too. And what I find difficult, and I think a lot of people feel difficult with their creative projects is saying no to work after 7pm is one thing. But what if you have all these ideas? How do you know what to say no to, whether it's those other people's requests for a great speaking gig or something, or your own ideas? Because if we set these guardrails, we only have the limited time to achieve these things. But how do we say no to good things? I guess that's the question. Yes, yes. I I totally hear that because most people are smart enough. Uh, I mean, unless they're super codependent, they're smart enough to say no to bad things, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the problem comes where we are saying, you know, where there's just like too many good things. You know, I mean, in some ways, it's a good a good problem to have. Like, oh, too many good options. You know, cry me a river. But the truth is, we can't do them all. And so one of the one of the things that I, I talk about in the long game, because you know, the truth is, if you want to be a long-term strategic thinker, if you want to actually accomplish these important long-term goals, whether it is writing a book or getting a book to market or, or whatever your variation is, you you actually do need to clear room upstream in order to make that a possibility. So learning to say no and learning to prioritize is incredibly important because otherwise you're never going to even have the bandwidth to remotely get close to your goal if your schedule is completely filled with, with dross and dreck. So as a result, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And one of the interesting frameworks that I share in the, the long game 
actually was something popularized by Derek Sivers, who's an author and an entrepreneur. And some folks may have heard of this. He talks about- He's been on the show too. Oh, I love it. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. He talks about the sort of hell yes or, or no paradigm. So meaning if it's not a hell yes, then you should be saying no to it. But I think that what is- perhaps less explored that that I, I think is important to tease out is that what that solves, the problem that that solves is the problem that actually bedevils most of us, which is the sort of medium good options, right? Because mm. the trouble again is not saying no to bad things. It's the sixes and the sevens and maybe even the eights on a scale of 10 where we're like, well, I don't really want to do it, but it could be good because of blah, 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 or it could be good because of BC. I mean, even this morning, I got an email first thing this morning from a friend of mine, and she is, she's been asked to help put together a panel of speakers for a conference. And it's going to be in Nashville, which is a cool place to go. And she wants to know what I do it, but it was going to be a pretty low fee, but I'd get to hang out with her and she was probably going to invite some of our other friends. So it's one of these things where you're like, oh, well, there's some good, there's some bad. Mm. And in the past, I probably would have erred on the side of saying yes to it. But this is very much a place where we have to revert back to like, what's our North Star here? What are we aiming at? And in my case, I really made a strong commitment that post-pandemic, once we were sort of getting a little bit more more normalized, I realized that I did not want to slip back into the practices that I had done before, where I was just like wantonly traveling all the time. I realized that it had really exhausted me. And certainly I wanted to be traveling more than I was during the pandemic, which was not at all. Mm. (laughs) But I also did not want to go back to giving... 35 to 50 speeches on the road per year, which is my average for a number of years before that. So I I decided that the better part of valor is cut it out. And so I wrote back to her right away and I was like, thank you so much, but I'm going to need to pass on this because I realized the biggest attraction is like the opportunity to hang out with her. And there's a lot of other ways that I could do it that didn't involve me, you know, flying somewhere and spending a weekend for a few thousand bucks. Yeah, it's interesting. And I really appreciated you sharing that in the book about your burnout. I mean, you basically were having burnout from all of that and performing while sick are very impressive, but also like, oh my goodness. And But it's interesting. I mean, in the book, you talk about needing this white space to even think about the long term. And it's almost like you, you mentioned there that talk things happen that we need that short-term cash sometimes. And so we do these things, but in that white space, when you have that white space, let's think that people do, I don't know, maybe they go to a cafe or maybe they can get away from the house to have that white space. What should they be asking themselves in order to try and think about what they might want for that North Star, as you mentioned? So what are some of the practices you have around figuring out what you want? Yeah. Thank you, Joanna. I'm eager to answer that, but I I actually just, if you don't mind, I want to turn the question back on you for a minute because you are someone who's really a polymath. I mean, you have this business and this podcast around helping people learn to be successful writers. You have written like a ginormous number of books yourself and in multiple genres and things like that. So I would love to just hear a little bit more about how you personally think about prioritization and fitting the different pieces together. Ah, but I'm interviewing you, Dory. (laughs) 
<laughs> but no, I mean, I do that. I have a lot of journals. I'm sitting here with about 40 journals. So I think by writing. So for me, I have to go somewhere and I write. And then what's interesting is I'll look back at a journal from a decade ago. I did this recently, looked at 2012. I had like three diaries or journals from 2012. And I went through them all. And what was interesting is so much that I journaled about has now happened. And so a lot of it for me is that ideation, I guess. It does help me to read books like yours. And why I wanted to speak to you was because I listened to the audiobook when I was in New Zealand at Christmas. So I, I listen to things and then I journal. That's basically how I think about it. And I'll come back to the future stuff in a minute. But now throwing it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And that's great to hear and to learn about your process. But I think that as we think about what questions we should be asking ourselves or how to really just begin to structure this exercise, I think there's a few starting points. The first one is really super big picture. A lot of times people do have a sense of what they'd like to accomplish or where they'd like to go. But what I've often found in in having written a book about long-term thinking, I think a lot of people are hesitant to own it in some ways because they, what I often hear is, oh, well, I'm not really sure how to do long-term thinking, or I can't do long-term thinking because I'm not sure how I would accomplish it. And I really want to take that and push back on it because I think in a lot of ways, the whole point of long-term thinking is to be thinking about things that we have no idea how to do. It would be so incredibly presumptuous. And I, I you know, dare say just flat out incorrect to imagine that anyone can perfectly envision over a big goal, let's say it's 20 years, 10 years, even five years, precisely the steps necessary to do something. I mean, the world is changing so fast. There's so many flaps of the butterfly wings or what have you. We really just can't pre predict. And so I think it's it's fine. It's great to have goals that you have no idea how you're going to accomplish them. That's the point of living for the next 20 years is to figure out how to do it, but you don't have to have it figured out today. So I think that sometimes it's just honoring the sort of gut sentiment that you have today. That's one piece. Another, which I always like to encourage people to do, and sometimes they're afraid to go here because it feels um, really weird, but uh, is to examine who you are jealous of. If we tone it down, we could say, who do you admire? But frankly, something that's even more helpful is like, no, who are you jealous of? Who Who is it out there in the world whether it's someone you know or a famous person, where you're like, oh my, I wish I could have their life. And you can peel it back. What is it about it? Is it that they have, have really succeeded in a particular genre? Is it that, oh my gosh, I'd really love to be interviewed on this particular NPR show or this BBC show? That's sort of a bucket list goal. Or maybe it's some aspect of their lifestyle, like, wow, I wish I could live in the country and not have to commute to a day job. Or it is, but it helps when you, we often have trouble envisioning things until we see someone else doing it. And so seeing what what's causing the tripwire in your brain of like, wow, I, I wish that could be me. I wish I could do that is really useful evidence for yourself. It's the trail of breadcrumbs that enables you to figure out what would be compelling for you. And then finally, something that I am always a really big fan of is trying to analyze what is the thing that if you did it now would make everything else easier? Is there something that could be a kind of foundational activity that will 
enable all the kind of downstream things that you hope to have happen. Oftentimes, for me, for instance, with the, with the clients that I work with, people come in and they they often, their starting point is that they want to write a book, which that was the case for me too. I, I wanted to write a book because I wanted to write a book. That has just been my goal since I was a kid. But the truth is, if you do certain other steps before writing the book, and in the case of authors or executives or entrepreneurs that I work with, it is writing for high-profile business publications. If you do that before you write the book, it makes everything downstream easier, including getting the book deal, including being able to publicize the book once it's out, including landing interviews of the people you want to interview for your book, et cetera, et cetera. So that's often a sort of first domino that I think can be useful. And so asking yourself, what is that first domino is not a bad question to ponder. Yeah, I completely get that. And as you said, that um, if you did it now, what would, you know, would it make everything easier? And I was just thinking there, email list. I mean, starting an email list early, I started mine in 2008. By starting my email list back then, it makes it far easier to sell books now. Yes, that's <laughs> And you've so got true. one as well, right? I mean, we have to do some of these things knowing that there'll be nobody on our list or no one listening to our podcast or nobody knows who we are now. But if we don't start it now, it's that whole planting tree thing, right? If you haven't done it yet, you've got to do it today. Yeah, you're so right, Joanna. I mean, most people who are writing books, I mean, they don't want to grow an email list. Like that's not, (laughs) there's like literally zero people in the world for whom growing an email list is the dream that they've held in their heart. It's the instrumental thing that we have to do. Mm -hmm. And, but yet to your point, it is something that if you work on it now, like future you in five years is going to be like, wow, thanks for doing that. That was really awesome. Good job. So I'm always very interested in the question of what is it that we can do that will please future you? That's a that's a great way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things like fitness and health and stuff like that. But it, that's why it's so hard. I mean, there's some psychology studies, aren't there, where they age people. They artificially age you and show you a picture of you when you're like 65 and say, and then say, would you like to put money into your pension, a little 22 year old? And far more people put money into a pension when they can look at themselves, actually a physically aged version of themselves. But it's it, it, just human brains just find that hard, right? Yeah, I mean, interests have shown that essentially people view their future self as literally a different person. Yeah. So it's like, well, who cares? You know, who's that jerk? Yeah, I'll <laughs> and, probably be dead. I mean, people yeah. say that too. And I'm like, yeah, but what if you're not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but like coming to, I wanted to ask you about publishing in particular, because the book is the long game and long-term thinking. And yet publishing itself has this kind of ridiculous model focused on bestseller lists, on spike sales. And if you, traditional publishing in particular, independent publishing is different. But this sort of idea that if you don't sell lots in the first month or so, and you know, you're not successful. So how can authors in particular think about the long game of a creative career? Well, I, I think this is a really important question because you're right. There is such an unhealthy focus and emphasis on bestseller lists. And it's interesting because even in the popular imagination, people will often, if they think you're good or if they somehow think you have stature, they will often call you a best-selling author, whether you are or not, Um, which (laughs) is interesting. I mean, I know you actually are, 
But for years, I mean, I've now done four books. Three of them, my first three books, were not bestsellers. I mean, I wish they were, but as you know, it's very hard to have a bestseller because all it means literally is that you have been able to sell a certain threshold. Let's call it generally a minimum of 5,000, sometimes depending on the list, 10 or 15,000 within a given calendar week. And if you don't do that, no matter how well your book does over time, you are not, in fact, a best-selling author. And not talking about Amazon bestsellers, which, as we know, can be gamed up the wazoo, but I'm talking about the more official lists. Mm. Finally, my recent book, The Long Game, was able to be a Wall Street Journal bestseller, but that was a process of about a decade of brand building and list building to enable me to reach the point where I was able to do that. But it's really interesting because for a long time, people were like, she's a best-selling author. And I have to be like, actually, technically, no. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it is really interesting. But I think you're exactly right. I mean, it depends in the end, of course, why you are writing the book. If you are a business person, which is, again, primarily the group of authors that I'm working with are entrepreneurs or executives, in general, Yes, they want to write a great book. Yes, they would like it to be a bestseller. But ultimately, the goal is typically that they want it to drive business or to drive professional opportunities for them. And so if that's the goal, it's really important to look beyond the bestseller status. I mean, yeah, it's a nice piece of social proof, but you want to continue promoting this book on an ongoing basis because it becomes your calling card. It becomes a thing that, that draws people to you. And however much money you make from the book, it is almost guaranteed, you know, aside from just a tiny, tiny slice of the population, that you will make much more money on the back end of your book rather than the front end. So ra- rather than money from people literally buying your book, if you were a business person, you'll make a lot more from the speeches, from the consulting engagements, from the coaching engagements, et cetera, that result from inquiries that are driven by your book. So keeping that in mind is a really important perception shift. Yes. And I think this is really important. And I often stress this sort of multiple streams of income that business and entrepreneurial writers have. You mentioned their speaking, which, and you're, I know you're a high profile speaker, often on sort of big stages. Do you feel that kind of more highly paid speaking gig, it becomes easier if you have a traditionally published book? Or do you think the these conferences and events are open to independent authors or self-published authors? I think with speaking, as with all aspects of publishing, the difference between commercially published and self-published or hybrid is eroding every day. I mean, it used to be a decade ago when I first published my first book, Reinventing You. It was a really stark difference in terms of how it was perceived, in terms of the uh, cachet. It was really important to be commercially published. And now... There are so many people who have chosen for a variety of reasons, many of which the reason is not that they couldn't cut it with a commercial publisher, which is how it used to be viewed. But instead, they're proactively making the choice to be self-published or hybrid published because they want a faster release schedule or because they want higher royalty rates or they have a niche audience where it's really important for them to publish a book in terms of establishing market credibility. But a mainstream publisher wouldn't be interested because they think it's too small of an audience, you know, whatever it is. But I think that that the distance has really diminished. And so, yeah, it probably is still a little helpful to have a commercially published book when it comes to speaking. But I think that the distinction is much less. And 
I think that if you are someone who is a self-published or hybrid published author and you have other forms of social proof as well to validate that you are a legitimate expert or legitimate professional in your field, then I, I don't see any problems at all in terms of landing fairly high profile speaking engagements. Yeah, it's, it's, it, I was at a Wired conference the other week and every speaker had a book and every book was traditionally published, which I kind of find hilarious because Wired is so much supposed to be a future focused publication, but they're actually traditional publishing. <laughs> yeah, so that's it's, funny. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. But I also wanted to ask you, because you do write quite a bit in the book about your own book process and getting published and some of those challenges. And obviously, again, you have lots of ideas. How do you decide on a nonfiction topic to write about in terms of tips for people listening who either want a traditional publishing deal or they want to focus the book more as like a business card or as the beginning of an entrepreneurial thing? Like, how do you decide what book you're going to write? Or is it just what you feel like writing? Well, I'll answer the question two ways. One, one way is the way that I would advise people to do it, which is if if you want to be hyper strategic, I, I have not always been hyper strategic myself, but uh, if that is your goal, then ideally you want to tie the book content as closely as possible to the services that you provide. So the ideal thing, which of course does not always happen, but in our dream world, it is you write a book, somebody reads the book, they say, my God, this is exactly what I need. I need to reach out right this minute and hire this person to do this thing for me that she has written about. And so if you can kind of create create that where the book touches on the themes where you help people and the thing you're talking about is exactly what you do, then you know that's the best pathway. It's just kind of 300, 200, 300 pages of indoctrinating somebody into uh, trusting you and recognizing that whatever service you're providing is exactly what they need. So that's a great way to think about it. If you're somebody who, for instance, runs a consultancy or something like that, what I have personally done is a little bit different but I think still still interesting and valuable, although perhaps less immediately remunerative, which is that I wrote books that were the things that I wanted to learn about. So I, I used it as kind of a learning and research project. Specifically, I'm talking about my book, Stand Out in an Entrepreneurial You. Reinventing You was a book that I wrote because um, I had written a blog post for a Harvard Business Review about it. And Essentially, that was the post that caught on and there just opened up an opportunity for me and I seized it. So I was happy to write a book about it, but I didn't really need to write a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stand Out was a book about me trying to understand how someone becomes a thought leader in their industry because that was what I was attempting to do. And I wanted to have an excuse to interview a lot of really smart people about their journey. And then Entrepreneurial You is a book that I wrote, again, for my own knowledge and benefit because I wanted to answer the question, how do you monetize thought leadership? Once you've gained a certain level of respect in an industry, what can you do to create multiple revenue streams and really be able to to leverage the value of the brand that you've created? So I wrote Entrepreneurial U to answer that question and to have the opportunity to connect with a lot of smart people on that. And then the long game was a little bit different. It was not so much that I wanted to learn something per se, but it was it was something that I was rolling around in my head and it was a philosophical question that I wanted to ponder and I thought might be helpful to other people. 
yeah, I write because I want to either learn something entirely or just codify what I've learned about something. So like I was getting loads of questions about podcasting a few years ago and audiobooks. So I wrote a book on audiobooks and podcasting so that it answered all the questions. But I'm like you too, it's kind of curiosity driven. But I did want to come to a question that's in the book and I'm pretty obsessed with the future of creativity. So this question in the book has really resonated with me, which is what are my hypotheses or what are your hypotheses about the future and how do they inform my actions today? So I wondered about what are some of yours. So given that we're thinking about the long game and you mentioned before how fast things are changing. So what are some of your hypotheses and how are you changing your actions? Well, start by answering the question actually with a past hypothesis of mine that relates to publishing. So about a decade ago when I was getting started, I landed my contract for my first book in 2011. I had a hypothesis that the commercial book publishing industry was going to completely collapse within a decade. And so (laughs) I recognized that at that time, as we were discussing, there was still a branding value to having a commercially published book. And I thought, okay, if I've got this contract now and I'm able to leverage the value of a mainstream publisher, I need to take advantage of that because eventually that's no longer going to be an advantage. And I think that's largely playing out, although it's not that publishing has collapsed per se, but I think it is true that the difference between hybrid and and traditional, just just most people don't care. They don't know. They don't even see it. You know. Mm. So I decided as a result of that hypothesis that I was going to write as many books as I could as quickly as I could in order to take advantage of that toehold that I had achieved before it collapsed. And so as a result, I I really went on a writing spree and I published three books within a f- basically a four-year period. 2013 was Reinventing You, 2015 was Standout, 2017 was Entrepreneurial You. And I then slowed down the pace. And so 20, four years later, 2021, I wrote The Long Game. My plan for myself, my strategy has now changed is I am intending to promote the long game for five years. So Mm -hmm. I have vowed not to come out with another business book until at least 2026, because I really want to be riding this wave. But my actions were very deliberately based around a hypothesis that it was important for me to leverage the advantage that I had managed to attain in breaking in with a commercial publisher and just creating as much IP as I could as quickly as I could. Now I feel like four books in, it's a little bit like diminishing returns. Like I don't need to be pumping things out the same way anymore. But I do think it was actually pretty helpful to me early in my career to just create a lot of stuff so that I had a lot of stuff to talk about. Mm. And then, okay, so looking ahead, for example, I think I know (laughs) the metaverse can be a dirty word for some people, but as a speaker, I find it very interesting. I mean, we've all been doing, I mean, you're after we finish recording, you do these LinkedIn live things and like, we're all used to doing online presentations and stuff, but let's face it, they're a bit crap, but yeah, doing the other thing, the going and speaking in a stadium or whatever, a theater is, is tiring and all this. So virtual reality to me seems like it may well have a really good application for speaking education, learning, that kind of thing. And it probably is a decade off, right? So what are your thoughts on how you might adapt to these coming changes? 
The thing, Joanna, that really has been fascinating me lately is less so the metaverse. I mean, I agree with you and I agree with Mark Zuckerberg that eventually it's going to be a thing, but quite clearly it's not a thing this minute. So Mm. I think it's probably not going to be a thing next year either. It is a long-term play. But uh, AI is really interesting to me, in particular GPT-3. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Dolly as well, which is the um, the yeah we've video. we've done shows on both of those things, so yeah, people know yeah. what they are. Yeah, oh, I'm glad you're interested in those. Yeah, amazing stuff, right? It is it is so interesting, and to the point about what is your what is a competitive advantage you have, and being mindful where that advantage might erode. I something that I think is both interesting and concerning is that AI is basically now it it pretty well can and I mean give it another year or two and I think it really really can write all the articles for us. Mm-hmm. Yep. It used to be a few years ago it was like oh you know AI is taking the job of like a reporter because it could take scoreboard statistics from like a baseball game and write up an article based on the data of like what happened in the baseball game, you know, okay, great. That's easy. But now you can basically say, Hey, GPT three, can you write a blog post in the voice of Joanna Penn talking about the the five top mistakes that rookie writers make? And oh, yeah, it will do totally it better do than you. Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And also you, I mean, you're the same. We, both of us have put out a lot of content over more than a decade. So you probably could just write in our voices. (laughs) Yeah, a hundred percent. And so on one hand, I I feel like there, there is an advantage in the sense that I quote unquote could create a a lot more content because I've done this sort of groundwork of putting my voice out there. Um, GPT-3 can kind of take it and run with it and create something that is mine. I say in air quotes, but it's not really mine because like anybody can create that. So I don't really know how that's going to play out. But I think the question that I always like to ask is, you know, th- there was a an observation back in the 70s by a Carnegie Mellon professor that in a world where information is abundant, something else becomes scarce. And that thing is attention. And that has played out a lot over the past 50 years. And so the question that I always like to ponder, which I don't yet know the answer to, is when the ability to write high-quality articles, for instance, quickly uh, becomes abundant, what is the thing that becomes scarce? What is something will? And that's the thing that's going to be valuable. That's the thing that's going to be monetizable. But we have to figure out what that is. Yeah, I think I mean I think we're already at the point where curation is so important. And this show, for example, a lots of people will be listening to your interview, but also a lot of people come along just for the introduction where I curate the news and a lot of it's AI news as well in the creative sphere. And so the curation of the mass, massive amount of information out there is is kind of important. But I totally agree with you. And to me, it's also not despairing about technology, but taking advantage of technology as a lever and using it for our creative purposes. So for example, the the image that will go on this blog post that accompanies the podcast is generated by Midjourney, which you probably know as AI art generation. So instead of stock photos, which I've used for more than a decade, I now generate each post myself because I find it super fun. (laughs) 
<laughs> so it's incorporating AI into our creative work rather than running away from it is my is my thought. Yes, absolutely. And of course, there were recent headlines about the guy who won an art competition with his mid-journey art mm. and the scandal of, oh my goodness, did he really do it? Quote unquote, you know, what does it mean for art if you're able to tell an AI to do something and then it does it? And it's rather philosophical, right? Like if you're an artist who has assistants that help you with whatever welding a sculpture, we've sort of determined that like, okay, well, they did it because they they told them what to do, but somehow we're still feeling different about AI. So watching those things play out and shake out, I think is really going to be fascinating. Mm. And then one final question, because we're almost out of time, but you mentioned that you're going to promote the long game for five years, which I think is it's brilliant. You've got this great book, so promote it. But what are you doing for book promotion? Everyone always needs to know this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, certainly around the launch, I mean, I did do all the maniacal things that that one does. A million podcasts, in my case, for the last three books that I've done, I've managed to do about 160 podcasts apiece for each of the three launches. So I've done over the past, I'm going to call it about eight years, over 700 podcasts. Mm. So there's a lot of them. But a mistake I think that I made was that in past launches, I became so burned out from doing 160, as you can imagine. I mean, like, yap, yap, yap. Like, you think you're the most boring person in the world after that. Mm. <laughs> it's like, no more. I can't take it. Um, so after those launches, I just like stopped for like a year. I'm just like, no, I'm done. I'm done. I can't do any podcasts. But what I've decided to do is, you know, you have to keep fanning the flame. So one thing that I am doing is I, I have committed to do two podcasts per week basically over the five-year period, which I think is a reasonable pace that I can maintain without making myself insane. Mm. And so continuing that, but also just being mindful instead of like rushing to write the next book or rushing to the next thing, it's continuing to do things like write articles and try to place them in high-profile publications that deal with the themes in the long game around long-term thinking and strategic thinking and things like that. It's continuing to give talks about it. I mean, it's essentially, the biggest thing is just not writing another book so that I'm not competing with myself and stepping on my toes about like, well, here's another thing I could do, you know? That's brilliant. I think that's going to give people a lot to think about. So where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? Joanna, thank you so much. So the new book is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And if folks want to learn more about me and get a bunch of free free articles and resources and things like that. My website is doryclark.com. And you can actually download a free strategic thinking self-assessment based on the long game that helps you apply the principles of strategic thinking to your own life and career and your writing career at doryclark.com slash the long game. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Dory. That was great. Thank you. Great speaking with you. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Dory and I'll repeat one of her questions here for you to think about. What is it that if you did it right now, it would make everything else easier? I think that question is so important. And what is it you can do right now that will please future you? And I think a lot of the times it is simplification, trying to simplify our systems and processes that will please us in the future. So I highly recommend The Long Game. I have it in audiobook and also in print format. And it's one of those books that's worth listening to kind of periodically. I'll probably listen to it again over the holiday season because it's good to focus on these things, uh, you know, as we go into the new year. 
So next week, back on Craft, I'm talking to John Truby about his new book, The Anatomy of Genre, which is really excellent. Uh, I got an advanced copy and then also pre-ordered it in a hardback as it is a treasure trove of story help. Many of you will have John's Anatomy of Story, but personally, I think Anatomy of Genre is far more helpful because it's specific for each genre with loads of examples. So uh, I'm, I love the book. I think it's brilliant and love talking to John. So that will be coming next week. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.